Happy Midnight, friends. You're listening to Midnight Theology, a podcast where we talk just about everything. Christianity, leadership, culture, uh, usually through a Wesleyan Methodist lens. I'm your host, Larry Frank, and as always, I'm joined by gregarious Gabe Wank. <laughs> Hello there. Sensational Sarah Wank. Hey, y'all. And the amazing Adam Penn. Howdy. You like what I did there? Yeah, but what's good? That was very loving, what's, Larry. Loving Larry. Uh, loving Larry. Oh, yeah. Larry. <laughs> you could go with luscious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate you listening and being with us so faithfully as this group continues to grow regularly. So Night Owls Unite, Midnight Theology <laughs> is a go. So we're going to jump right in today. It's an episode we've all known was coming, but honestly, none of us have really been looking forward to it that much. And just to give our listeners an idea of how true that is, guys, on a scale of one to 10, how excited and joyful and carefree are you to talk about this episode today? Scale of one to 10. Can we do negatives? Sure. Does that count? (laughs) Negative 1,000. A three. Three. A three. Okay. I'm gonna go with three. It's a good locator. Can you define Gabriel? can you define excited and carefree <laughs> in a joyful def- way? Defi- how happy how happy are you about this? Excited usually means you're looking forward to it. You're it's happy so that important. It's, it's so important. There is a there is excitement, but there's also trepidation. What's so, your number? Six point five seven two. Oh, oh. Oh, wow. I did not see that coming. So Adam's at I a guess negative. I, I, I need an attitude adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a chiropractic adjustment, but it didn't help my my feelings uh, towards it. So Adam's at a negative. Sarah, you said three. Three. Gabe, six and a half. I'm going to go with a one. Mm. So so we're that's just, you know. <laughs> I am slightly uh, nauseous. Just, does, that, does that count? I mean, that probably three is why nausea. you're at a three. <laughs> yeah. So uh, today, as we shared in the last episode, we're addressing the elephant in the room for the United Methodist Church, and quite frankly, for all churches. Um, it's an, the ongoing debate around the extent of inclusion for LGBTQ persons in the life of the church. This is not a United Methodist-centric issue. All churches and denominations are um, are having a reckoning around this. Uh, but our context for all of us is the United Methodist Church and every UMC congregation is having this conversation right now as our denomination has taking, taken what was always seemingly the coming reality of a split and now it is full on reality. Uh, to date, nearly 2,000 local churches have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church, uh, citing um, this debate as one of their main reasons. And this is a difficult topic. Um, so let's just say from the outset that we're doing our best to hold in tension our understandings of scripture, faithfulness to our ordination vows and sense of call, and love for people because this isn't really an issue to debate. We're talking about people to be loved, as Preston Sprinkle says in his book uh, on this topic. Uh, so in that spirit, uh, we've realized that this is a huge subject. So we're going to split this episode into two parts. First time we've ever done that. Uh, so today we're going to talk about kind of the history of what's brought us to this point, uh, theologically through the history of the United Methodist church, kind of a primer on the structure of the UMC as Uh, We've discovered that many people, even lifelong United Methodists, don't have a firm grip on what happens um, in denomination-wide outside of their own local church. And a lot of local congregations have been shielded from this debate as it's happened at the general church level, but now it's coming into everyone's living rooms. Uh, And we'll talk about the growing struggle around scriptural interpretation and theological method and how all of that came to a head in 2019. And that's kind of where we'll put a pin in it today, just for parameters of the conversation next episode we'll talk about kind of the emerging options for local churches and where we find hope for the methodist movement uh for wesleyans and for the church at large in the midst of all that okay we good with that all right so uh let's talk first about just the united methodist church in general because i think people think uh, like going back to wesley that we're just this very long tenured denomination and that's just not True. Uh, so, Gabe, as the elder statesman, why don't you tell us uh, when the United Methodist Church formed? I think Larry just called you old. Uh, well, I'm trying to keep it light. Trying to keep it light. We have to do one old effort. 
old reference an episode. We got George last time. <laughs> we got <laughs> George last turn. time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I was maybe laying it on a little, little too thick there. So now it's it's only fair. But uh, okay. <laughs> uh, this is a word I picked up in the Midwest, but it may be used everywhere. But beings, beings that uh, I am the <laughs> oldest representative here uh, on this particular uh, episode at uh, the ripe old age of forty six and a half, just just past the half birthday. I'm just. Uh, I'm just a decade out. So, I mean, the United Methodist de denomination is only 55 years old as of 2023. It's a 55-year-old expression of uh, what started 250-some years ago through John Wesley. So, uh, 1968, the formation of the UMC, as we know it today, uh, came into being where the Methodist Church uh, and the Un Evangelical United Brethren Church, which is a compilation. The Evangelical was a church. The United Brethren was a church. Uh, there, there's just so much history, and I know you don't want me to go all the way back, so I won't. But in 68, the two separate denominations merged. They agreed on a polity. They agreed on a doctrine. There was a broad span uh, across the board on some things, but on the main things, they agreed uh, on who God was, on how we are to live our lives out as followers of Jesus uh, and to be making disciples. And so that's where it all began, 1968, in the midst of the um, uh, many crises uh, in our Americas, uh, civil rights being uh, number one in 1968, um, those happenings, a lot of things happening uh, back in the late 60s, coming out of Vietnam and all the other uh, things. So here we are. Mm -hmm. our, um, our, yeah, so I, I mean, our physical church, just as an example, is a really unique um, illustration of what happened in 68. So our beautiful church building was built right in that time frame, uh, the late 60s, and was uh, built as a, in, intended as an Evangelical United Brethren location. The Methodist Church was just down the hill, and um, I think within the first moments of them beginning to build the new EUB building, uh, the Methodist Church began to meet in the building with them. And so this mm, wow. one physical location had um, a Methodist congregation in it, and an EUB congregation in it, they had two separate pastors, a Methodist pastor and an EUB hmm. pastor. And so we have folks in our church who will remember getting married at the old Methodist church down the hill. And so they were, you know, young adults for the merger. And we have a tendency to say, we've always been United Methodist, right? And that's all we know, all we remember. And, um, you know, for, for a lot of United Methodists, uh, they were physically alive in the time of this merger and experienced a bit of what our church did, right, a coming together uh, of those two denominations. And though they did agree on a lot, um, there were differences among them that we kind of, you know, had to learn to compromise on a bit from the very beginning. But I, I, just a really unique um, picture, I don't know that I've experienced it before, where the building was built as EUB, and they had two bodies meeting underneath it, and then eventually merged together in what we know as the United Methodist Church. The first, uh, one of the first churches I pastored, uh, appointed uh, full-time, uh, was an EUB church, uh, the building, the people. Uh, and there was a, a man in there, he was a father, uh, by the time I was there, his children were maybe 10 years younger than me. Um, and he remembers being confirmed, uh, going through confirmation class as a young uh, person, you know, sixth, seventh, or eighth grade. One year he was confirmed to UB. The very next year, 1968, he was confirmed as a United Methodist. He had to go through confirmation twice. He, oh my he, goodness. Kn he knows his Bible through and through. He holds it, and it is quite well-worn uh, on the binding and, uh, and the cover. It's beautiful, beautiful testimony, but just uh, kind of typifies the, the creation and the existence of the United Methodist Church is not just what we think it is. It has history. Gabe, you pointed out that the EUB was the product of a murder. That's true for the Methodist Church, too. You can't say a murder. You said a murder? Yeah. It oh, was stop. the project of a merger. There we go. Use your ears. Um, so in 
in I think it was 1935, the the Methodist Church comes into existence. Prior to that, it was the Methodist Episcopal Church and several other branches. So you have you have German speaking Methodists and and more Anglicized Methodists, all you know, splitting apart, coming together. Um, you know, so this is kind of who we are. This you know, uh, break apart, come back together thing. Let's just not forget that the any existence of the Methodist Wesleyan movement is a split from a larger denomination, right? Our very right. existence is disaffiliation. And um, we, we sometimes neglect that part out of passion and inspiration. Uh, and I, I say that for no reason other than to say it is not sort of the polished history that, you know, when I go, I've right. only known life in the Methodist church, you know. Uh, it is not uh, sort of the clean, pristine history that we remember it as. Yeah, well, because yeah. most most people alive today probably only remember the United Methodist Church, right? At least in their adult lives. You're right, and, and I think that's an important thing for us to point out historically, because I mean, nobody likes what's happening right now. Um, but kind of the the argument of you know um, we need to we need to stay together and, and and work it out, whatever. If that's the case, we need to you know we need to go to Pope Francis and ask for some forgiveness. Uh, and then uh, he needs to turn around and join back to the Eastern Church. I mean, the whole history of the church is yeah. is this. And I'm not I'm not siding with one side or the other in saying that. I'm saying it, it may just be time for us to bless one another um, and realize that we can be better partners in ministry, not living in the same house. Yeah, like um, it's an it's th- an awful thing, but it but it's happened and it happens. And how do we, you know, further the mission, focus on the mission? trust that each other is pursuing the mission, you know, even if we're Eastern Orthodox or Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican or Methodist or EUB, right? Right. Right. So, so in 1968, you have the EUB and the Methodist Church coming together, forming the United Methodist Church. And in their, their original discipline, which I have a copy of the 1968 discipline, there's a statement on theological pluralism that, that this is, um, something that, that an experiment bringing together these these two different tracks of the Wesleyan movement into one um, what was described as pitching a big tent like we're going to be a we're going to be a big tent church and we're going to we're going to embrace this theological pluralism uh, and I think history even though it's a very young denomination history has shown that that's been a failed experiment um, <laughs> for us uh, the the big tent uh, as we're experiencing right now has become a little bit more of a circus tent um <laughs> And and, and, it, and I have another real life so so a person in my congregation um, and I can't, I honestly can't remember who told me um, and so there's no names involved so that really helps um, unless they're they, listening to the podcast well I mean even if they are they don't they don't they don't they they were friends with the EUB pastor um, at the time of the merger and they remember the EUB pastor saying this is a bad idea uh, we are not the same. And, uh, you know, we have two different sort of theologies and approaches, and putting us together is not going to make this work, you know? And and him having this angst of, like, we're doing something that may not come into alignment the way everybody thinks it's going to. And I'm convinced more and more that we're now just sort of reaping the reality of that uncertainty from him. Yeah, it's taken us five decades maybe to figure it out. I mean, but yeah. not every institutionally. N- yeah, yeah. Not, and I not mean, the ev- divide not- has been playing itself out through the entire history of the United Methodist Church. Well, and 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 many local congregations, like Sarah pointed to, were not on board with this in the first place. In a previous town that I served in, there were four United Methodist churches within the town. <laughs> Um, they were all shared denomination, but they would not come together because this one used to be EUB. This one, of course, and, and I, I won't name I won't name the town uh, or, or the state, but I have been where there are two United Methodist churches next door to one another who share a parking lot with one another, but still to this day, fifty five years later, do not share any ministry together because one was EUB, one was was Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so this was not as clean cut as in history tends to look back on some things with rose colored glasses and we've tried to do that in the spirit of rah rah let's be united methodist yeah make it work uh, to, to, yeah, is it, is yeah. It, and, maybe, and, and that's a noble cause but sure i mean let's think to what uh, who we affectionately refer to as papa wesley 
he was an Anglican priest. He died an Anglican priest. He never left the church. And this expression yeah. of Methodism was a revival movement uh, effort to revive the church and to provide for Christians in the Americas as the Americas were being established. There's yeah, a lot it, it of- was it was it's only because of the American Revolution that Wesley's hand is forced. Yeah. Uh, now, now, I don't want to rose-colored glass that historically either. Like, like Wesley was getting closer and closer to breaking with the Anglican Church. I mean, yeah. he was co- consistently having arguments with bishops who would not legitimately recognize the Methodist movement. He wanted the Methodists to be an evangelical order within the, the Church of England. It wasn't happening. And the longer it went on, the closer he was mm-hmm. to breaking. He did not ever personally break. But, and then his hand was forced by the American Revolution. Um, it was going to happen at some point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, so to kind of see how this, this big tent pluralism started to play out in the church, we have to talk a little bit about the structure of the United Methodist Church. Um, and as Gabe pointed out, you know, in the midst of the civil rights movement, all this stuff, this, this denomination comes together. Uh, and let's just say there is no more American denomination (laughs) than the United Methodist church in its structure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so we have three main branches to the denomination for, for those who, uh, don't pay attention or have not been initiated into the goings on of the upper denomination. Uh, we have the council of bishops, uh, which is our executive branch. Uh, the, General Conference is our legislative branch, and the Judicial Council is the judicial branch. So if you think back to Schoolhouse Rock, you can remember all of that, um, how that works. So we have these three different bodies, um, but the General Conference, the legislative branch, is the only one that can speak for the entire denomination. Uh, and every four years, they get together um, and uh, make changes to the discipline, set the course for the denomination, they who? What do you mean by general conference? Who does that include? <clears throat> yeah, okay. So every every conference um, based on their, their membership is able to elect delegates, pastors, and lay people to go and in, 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 uh, vote on behalf of, of their conference um, and, and make those changes. There are some things they cannot change. Uh, there are restrictive rules uh, in the discipline. Those the restrictive rules cannot be changed. Anything that affects the constitution, what, if it passes general conference, it has to go to all of the annual conferences uh, to ratify, and that has proved to be uh, a very difficult process. That several things the general conference has passed, the annual conferences have rejected. Um, so you can just see how this plays out, though, um, much like. Uh, the American system of government with what's intended to be good checks and balances, but often ends up being, uh, we're just going to, we're going to do what we want. Um, and or, we'll talk- or institutional deadlock. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have, right. when we say the legislative branch, our global, our general conference speaks for the United Methodist church. What we mean is they are the official, um, authors of law of our church law. And, mm-hmm that the then Council of Bishops, our executive branch, they are supposed to be those who apply the law that is set in place by our legislative branch, the General Conference. And our judicial branch should be asking the question if the law, the legislative branch uh, passes, is fitting to our constitution and our rules. And And to continue interpreting the application of that. Yes. And so we're supposed to have, like the government, this checks and balances where one is writing, one is checking it, and one is applying it. Um, But as we've experienced in real life, in the real world, that sometimes that leads to a deadlock, as Adam said, uh, where it is very hard to to actually physically change things uh, on paper. and sometimes difficult to be in agreement with one another about how those things are lived out. So yeah, just just to clarify, and I'm I'm trying to make sure that we don't get lost because we're pretty familiar with it all. Some of our listeners are too, but some of them may not be. Uh, just right. the idea of general conference it, it encompasses the global expression of the United Methodist Church. It's not just uh, in Illinois where we represent. It's not just the U.S. It's 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 the whole world. And so wherever there is a United Methodist Church globally, from the Philippines to um, Africa or wherever it may be located, representatives from each of those annual conferences gather. How many people at General Conference gather every four years, give or take? 
No idea. It's less than a. Th- it's less than a thousand <laughs> delegates. I know okay. that. Um, eight hundred something. Five hundred. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it, there was eight eight hundred something at the last one. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the special session. I, I think I had a picture up of the vote yeah. uh, total. So it was what's somebody add four thirty eight to three eighty four. <laughs> That should yeah, give you your delegate. 800. About 800. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're talking about yeah. multiple languages, multiple cultural contexts, uh, a lot of energy Absolutely. and effort to, to gather together. But it's not just US, U.S.-centric. It's it's global-centric. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We're, which, yeah, we're which, modeled after the U.S. government, but we are a global right. body. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which, is, which, is, which is part of the, uh, the stickiness of legislating um, any issue uh, because Americans, we like to get our way. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, and, really? What are you talking yeah, about? And, and it, when, when you look at the nature of the United Methodist Church, um, you have two denominations coming together in 68, and you would think that would lead to some energy and growth. Uh, we have been in sustained and steady decline since 1968. Uh, as the United Methodist Church expands its presence around the world, we see Africa and the Philippines growing at a rapid rate as we decline. Um, and the delegate counts are based on the membership of an annual conference. So as the United States shrinks, they lose yep. representation at general conference. Yep. So by the time, by the time, uh, the uh, next general conference is 2024. By the time we get to 2028, the majority of United Methodists will be from outside of the United States. That that's part of the, the, the difficulty, um, uh, in this. So that, that's a little primer on. Uh, the the structure um, piece of it and what the expectations are. So at the very first general conference after the merging conference in 1968, so 1972, the general conference um, adds some statements regarding human sexuality to the discipline um, that is very nuanced, but has remained largely unchanged since 1972. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, in 1972 added statements to the discipline that said, all people are of sacred worth and are in need of the ministry of the church, but the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Uh, and the, the practical application of that is that our churches are not available for, and our pastors may not preside at same gender weddings. And then that self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be ordained as pastors or certified as candidates for ministry. So that's more or less what goes in in 1972. Every four years since 1972, the General Conference has taken up this issue. Um, it, and it increase, has increasingly been a hot topic issue uh, in the midst of cultural uh, change. Um, but up through 2016, the vote totals continued to become more explicitly in the traditional direction uh, as the influence of Africa and the Philippines and some places in Eastern Europe um, that are very conservative, um, as their influence grew, uh, so did the the gap in the, in the votes. So every four years, this issue um, comes up stronger from all of us for our the length of our ministries this has been the thing that has been uh, hanging over our heads i mean <laughs> i've i've been under appointment for 15 years now uh i've been going to annual conference since i was 14 years old this has been the thing right yeah mm-hmm. and even my dad right who so we say like in our lifetime it's been a thing you know my dad uh entered into ministry in uh, 1984 full-time part-time before that and he's said um, that it has been an issue at every annual conference and every general conference that he could remember. So it has been a continued strain. And, you know, a lot of folks just wouldn't know that if they don't go to annual conference, right? They wouldn't experience that ongoing tension. And it's an ongoing tension because of that Big Ten experiment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that, that you have uh, you have those that are more on the the, the conservative, orthodox um, theological viewpoint, and then there are those that lean more into progressive expressions of of Christianity. And I, I don't think we can properly talk about what has happened if we don't talk a little bit about the how 
the, the, the rise of the different tracks in theology uh, and how that continues to affect uh, the, the conversation. So Adam, you're our, our resident historical theologian. So uh, why don't you <laughs> give, give us a little, you always do it. You don't claim it, but you always take us there. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Let me enlighten you. <laughs> so, so what are, the what are you wanting? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, basically we can kind of trace uh, a theological divide that opened up back towards the beginning of the 20th century when a scientific worldview was starting to take root. Um, you know, the theories of both evolution and the Big Bang Theory uh, were relatively newly introduced um, towards the end of the uh, ninth, uh, I'm sorry, the um, the 19th century and beginning into the 20th century, um, that really brought up some legitimate questions as to how we in, how we reconcile scripture with some of these new ideas um, that were gaining wide acceptance in the larger culture. And so a, I believe, well-meaning group of theologians took to, took to the task of attempting to do that. Um, and essentially how they engaged scripture was more or less as a historical document um, that may not be authoritative on issues of science, but that still contained existential truths that were applicable to our lives. Um, is that fair, guys, yeah. to say? Yeah, doing great. Um, and so out of that arose all sorts of different ways of understanding things like uh, the resurrection, the virgin birth, things that are outside of the realm of normal experience or not easily explained by science. Um, differing explanations of those things were offered. Um, and so th those who... Uh, what, what it represented largely was kind of a break from traditional church teaching. Um, mm -hmm. That the, the teachings of the church that had been handed down for the last nearly 2,000 years, these were novel ideas that were spurred on by the, uh, a scientific worldview. Um, and so this is not, you know, what, what I'm trying to say is this is not a new divide. Um, this is a yes. this is a century over a century old divide that started in our seminaries. Um, you know that that's where these sorts of ideas began to be disseminated to clergy. Clergy disseminated these ideas to their laity, um, and so you wound up uh, with churches who hold more. Uh, progressive theology uh, in a more progressive worldview, and you ended up with churches who hold a more uh, traditional theology and worldview. Um, and all so under those, the same tent. Exactly. So those were the strains that already existed when the merger happened in 1968. Mm -hmm. And even though our stated theology is the same, how we actually work that out in practice has been different since the inception of the United Methodist Church. The right. tension has always been there. It's it's nothing new. It, yeah. And one of the one of the rises in that worldview of of existentialism is that there is there, there's a rejection of meta narratives and absolute truth. Whereas, whereas those that are more on on an orthodox trajectory say yes, the world around us has changed. But there are timeless, absolute pieces of moral truth. So it's it's in, uh, in historical it, truths yeah. that require a leap of faith, right? You know, it's not every day that a person physically walks out of a tomb after being dead for three days, right? Yeah. Um, so and those things become non-negotiables, right? Um, when, when when it comes to dogma, um, and so. You're right. All of these the, the, these these debates gave rise to the situation we find ourselves in now. So I think it's really important for our listeners to know that the inclusion of LGBTQ people is not the main issue here. No, it's the presenting issue, the presenting symptom of a hundred year um, illness that's been brewing in the church. And, and I don't mean that one side is sick and one side's not. I mean that th there, there's two pieces of DNA that can't coexist. 
Yeah. Uh, and one has to win out. Because yeah. basically what it comes down to is we are saying the same words and meaning different things. Yeah. Yes. You know, that when I say resurrection, I might mean something different than a person who holds a different view of the resurrection than I do. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's it's important for me anyway to go, you know, this, uh, you know, there's a reason that, uh, and not on not on the topic of human sexuality, but on all sorts of issues that we, you know, unearth together. Uh, some some have a tendency to say, well, what would John Wesley say about it, or what would you know the early church say about it, or uh, why wasn't this an issue, you know, in the American Revolution when they're planting churches and Amer- and American Methodism is taking off like wildfire? That's because and through those th- those days up until that point, there was a shared agreement about Scripture, right? A shared treatment of it, and um, so it's only sort of recent history that we have had these differing opinions. And uh, again, like we do with the coming together of the denomination, we think we think it's an issue that reaches sort of way, way, way back, you know, that it's always been this way. But the disagreement over the interpretation of Scripture is not something that goes way, way, way back. You know, these issues would have been agreed upon and understood uh, because of the shared commonality of Scripture, and that's only changed within many of our lifetimes. Yeah. As per speaking, speak, speaking as a kind of a historian, a hundred years is not no. a long stretch of time, right? You know, so we we, we think of this as, as ancient history. It's not. These are new things that happen within the last century or so are new novel ideas. I mean, yeah. this is you know, um, we talk about liminality. I mean, hundred years is not that long. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and, just like just alone, the discovery that it takes billions of years for the light from stars to reach our eyes—that's huge, right? Yeah. Because it it tells us that the the universe is older than a few thousand years. You know, it's it's billions of years old. That revelation alone, which was just a scientific discovery, it creates new questions that we've never had to grapple with before. Yeah. And and the Bible is rooted in a completely different worldview. Um, you know, they heck even in old in Old Testament times, well, even in New Testament times, they they didn't know that the world was round, right? What we, it, the 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 it's, biblical worldview was that the Earth was flat, you know, on. and there was a, a firmament that separated the waters above from the waters below, and there's you know, so like you know, even that, right? Like you know, Galileo's discovery of the earth is round. Wow. That's a completely novel thing that we've never had to reconcile the Bible with before. And and that's what this keeps coming back to. If 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 the Bible is not meant to be a scientific textbook Correct. dealing with modern science issues, does that mean we should reject um, the narratives that are there? Or is there a way to hold that intention and accept that the Bible is not meant to be scientific fact, but it is truth? Yeah. And can it be historical fact? And, and yeah. I think we mentioned in a previous episode, it might have been Roe v. Wade, I can't remember, where we're sort of the tipping point of part of that, you know, enlightenment stuff is it used to be sort of um, bending our understanding of the world to the text, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and with a, a shift in the last hundred years, it is how do we sort of bend scripture to uh, the issues of the world, including science, right? And again, not saying that it's, uh, you know, an enemy versus another enemy, but we're just dealing in a time that uh, trying to navigate issues with a divide that didn't exist in the church before, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, there would not have been um, this kind of grappling over Scripture, right, 150 years ago. But there has been, and I think this is the fun part where the the husband gets to push back on the wife, and, and it's just yeah. par for the course, right? So here's here's just a little bit of a pushback, and and I and I, I I'm confident you will have a great response, but and Larry too, and Adam, but it, hasn't there been some scriptural controversies over the last two thousand years? I mean, there's even been be, even before Christianity, well, there was of, of tr- course, yeah. of course, right. yes, right. Like we've like, always yeah. wrestled yeah, this with is the nothing text. New. How does the text inform us? How do we inform the text? Does the text speak for itself? How do we understand it with the language barriers, with the cultural barriers, with time 
clicking on, but there's there's been so many countless uh, efforts to understand and nail down what it really means. How yeah. do we interpret it? How do we apply that interpretation openly, honestly, with great humility before our um, awesome God? How do we do that? Yeah, yeah the, want- the difference is this: these are specifically questions that scientific progress raised. Instead of just yeah. how how do we interpret the scriptures themselves? Yes, it's what is the place of scripture in relation to scientific revelation? Yeah, right. yeah. Like there have been disagreements over like, did Jesus actually walk out of the tomb? I mean, that's a, that's a question people have been asking since Jesus walked out of the tomb. Like that's not new, uh, but since the existence of Christianity, a, a sort of shared reverence of the text to interpret Christian things, godly things of the from the text, but not placing the text uh, as an evaluative piece against everything else. So um, so there's always been questions and processing and trying to understand the text. but um, I don't know that there has always been a, a yeah, as Adam said, bringing the text sort of underneath everything else, right and saying where does it fit? I also think part of the difference was when you look at the early church councils and things like that, like they were attempting to to come to an understanding and then that was going to be it. So was Jesus walking around in a physical body after he walked out of the grave or was he just a spirit? Nicaea says he physically rose from the dead. This is now the teaching of the church that is a non-negotiable. And those who disagreed with that were labeled as heretics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we've tried to hold this plurality intention that it's okay um, if you disagree with me on this thing. And there are some things that that is certainly okay. There are things that, that are, are, are negotiable. Um, I essentials. Yeah, and I think the the presentation of of sexuality as the presenting issue uh, is really sad because uh, I don't think it's a salvation uh, issue. Yeah. I I don't think it's a core thing, but it's what we have to deal with um, yeah. right now. It's 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 that thing holding intention, scientific um, uh, truth with the the revealed revelation uh, inspired by the by the Holy Spirit in the written word, um, it, without calling one another heretics. Mm-hmm. Well, and noting. That, yeah. <laughs> And noting that even the notion of monogamous same-sex marriage is also a cultural anomaly. We've never attempted that in human history, right? So even that is a new cultural question that the church has to uh, grapple with in, in light of Scripture. Yeah, and I just don't think we're very good at wrestling with ideas. We, we want a clear-cut uh, answer, yeah. and this just it raises a lot of questions. We don't like you know, the discomfort uh, of unanswered questions and mystery. Uh, we're horrible at saying, I wish the Bible had an answer for this, but it doesn't speak to it explicitly, and just being okay with the mystery of that. We don't like discomfort mm-hmm. in conversation with other people. We're two good Midwesterners, you know, around mm-hmm. here to, to want to love people through the tension of processing together and um, yeah, I, I, I think I've come to an understanding finally. I didn't, I didn't know this until recently. We've been talking about these two things coming together under one tent, right? Two different sort of denominations, two approaches to ministry, uh, different approaches to understanding scripture, kind of all under one thing. You know, I was raised as the kind of Methodist that Methodism was social holiness, personal or not, I'm sorry, personal holiness and uh, piety, sanctification, and uh, your relationship with Christ. Of course, there are things that come out of that. I'm just understanding that there's a whole other half of the world that experienced Methodism as something other than that. What I mm-hmm. describe as Methodism to them sounds like uh, going to the Baptist church. Um, but for me and a whole lot of people, that's how they experienced Methodism. It's like, We've, we've each adopted our own version of Methodism. And for some people, it was social justice and uh, you know loving their neighbor. For another group of people, it's uh, sanctification and personal holiness. And not that one doesn't also dabble in the other. They do. But um, I, I think it's really great, uh, Larry, that you've led us in this direction of saying, no wonder we're in a struggle, right? We are sort of 
they put two cats in a bag and and tied it up. <laughs> and and we're living and it ain't going in the well. aftermath of that. It's not. It's not. It, ain't, it ain't going well. <laughs> All right. So let, let, let's get back. Uh, that kind of explains how theologically we got to this this point. Um, and, and both sides are, are well-meaning and, and just you know, trying to live out their own uh, faithfulness to their understanding of scripture. Um, so every four years, this gets rehashed. Um, like I said, the vote keeps leaning more and more in a traditional direction. In 2016, we come to an impasse at general conference. Um, there's, there's the, 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 the gap in the vote is wider than it's ever been before. Um, traditionalists are getting very close to putting some uh, closing some loopholes in the discipline where people were getting around um, things that, that were not supposed to be done. Uh, protests are breaking out on the floor. Uh, the bishops call a timeout and they say, if we stop acts of disobedience on the progressive side and conservatives stop filing charges against those who violate the discipline, can, can we just stop, take a breath and we're going to form a separate committee called the commission on a way forward who will bring a recommendation to a specially called general conference outside of the every four year thing to make a recommendation to see us through, um, this, this impasse. Uh, so the commission on a way forward is, is formed. There are bishops and clergy and laity from around the world on this team. George, who was on our podcast the last time was a member of the commission on a way forward. Uh, they meet together for immense amounts of prayer and dialogue and formation around this. And three different plans emerge. The traditional plan that essentially it kept our, our doctrinal stance around human sexuality the same, but closed those loopholes. Uh, the one church plan, which um, was essentially we're all going to stay together, um, but each church and each pastor can decide for themselves how they're going to uh, to operate when it comes to, to issues of same-sex marriage and ordination and inclusion. Uh, and the commission on a way forward actually offered that as their preferred plan. 61% of the council of bishops affirmed that plan. Then there was the connectional conference plan, um, which I think was probably the best option we had on the table, but it was so complicated as far as constitutional amendments that it, it just became Swiss cheese. It, it just had a snowball's <laughs> chance in hell of passing. <laughs> um, so in 2019, there's a specially called general conference in St. Louis. Uh, I was a marshal, so I was on the floor for most of it. Gabe was also there for a good portion of it, observing uh, in the gallery. Uh, the very first day, uh, well, actually the first day they spent in prayer and fasting, which I thought was just a phenomenal idea mm -hmm. um, before something like that. Uh, the first thing they did is- before that ever started. Uh, right. Global, global prayer for general conference 19. So the first act of business they did was to rank all of the legislative proposals that were before the general conference because they only had so much time to deal with them. So this told them what to do. We knew from that first ranking that the support in the room was behind the traditional plan. Mm -hmm. It was the number two thing to be talked about. The first one was what happens to our pensions uh, when something happens, which, well, was of course. which was of grave concern to everyone. Uh, number two was the traditional plan uh, and the one church plan was behind that. So mm -hmm. Everyone knew the traditional plan was going to pass at that point. Uh, the Council of Bishops was stunned because uh, they 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 thought the one church plan was going to going to pass. Um, in the closing moments of the general conference, um, the traditional plan does pass fifty three percent to forty six percent, and that ended up being the closest the vote has ever been, uh, which was interesting. Uh, and immediately protests break out on the floor progressive folks say we're not going to abide by this we're you know so it who would have thought that having a general conference aimed simply at human sexuality was going to solve our issues um who could I have mean, predicted least, that it was just going to entrench us further i mean at least we prayed and fasted before we ripped each That's other right. limb from limb we did uh, yeah it was Ouch. as a marshal as a marshal um there uh, we were escorted from the conference floor because the protests were getting set. we could not walk out the front door of mm. the dome in st louis um because it was getting so intense um there so uh since 
since then there have been continued acts of of disobedience there uh, the formation of the wesleyan covenant association and now the official launch of the global methodist church which is a conservative alternative to what what's going on and we thought we would have a chance to settle everything in uh in 2020 at the regular general conference but who remembers what happened in 2020 uh was it something with uh i don't want to remember <laughs> It was it was Corona on a beach without the beach at a virus. Oh, uh, uh, so so the general conference has been postponed and then postponed and postponed once more. Uh, and now we're waiting till 2024. And there's all these different options that have um, that have emerged and churches are taking action. Some are uh, are waiting it out uh, in that. But that's just kind of how we got to this point. Yeah, it's also worth noting that those who have continued in violation of our discipline since 2019 are acting more or less as conscientious objectors or, or engaging in acts of civil, what they consider to be civil dis- disobedience. E- ecclesial disobedience, they yeah, call it. E- yeah, yeah, ecclesi- yeah, ecclesial disobedience since that is an issue of justice in their mind, right? So it's, yes. it, you know... Uh, and, and that does get back to that deeper theological divide, right, where if I do perceive this to be a justice issue, then, of course, I'm going to act in the way that I feel to be just. Yeah. Which and so we've said it's not like t- they're bad actors, you know, intentionally trying to tear apart the church. They're they are acting out of a, what a place of what they perceive to be just. Yes. Which, right. which any of us would do around any particular issue. Right. You know, yeah. depending on the issue, of course. Yeah, I, I would, I would assume that if the United Methodist Church were to officially change its stance in the opposite direction, you would have folks on uh, the traditionalist side of that who would do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of my sadness in it. Is we can we're sitting here and we're recognizing that there's not really any bad actors in this. I mean, for progressive folk, this is an issue of justice. Uh, and God's God's justice um, for, for for folks on the Orthodox side, it's it's an issue of uh, uh, of the way that God asks us to live our lives um, in, in relation to His His best for us. Um, but that's not the way it's been playing out in the division. There's there's been a lot of finger pointing, bad uh, faith, and, and and yes, yeah, yeah. We've Assuming been acting emotionally. Worst. In many instances, we've been reacting out of emotion instead of sort of, you know, thoughtfully, gently r- responding, right, as mm-hmm. uh, in conversation with people who essentially are in it for the same thing. I don't care which end of the angle or spectrum you're on. The hope is to introduce people to the love of Jesus. And we're all sort of pushing on different aspects of that. Um, and, and we've responded poorly many times because we get emotional about it and um, forgetting that in one way or another, we're sharing in a mission. We might be sharing in it differently, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But the people for whom it's an issue of justice are pursuing that because they deeply believe that there's a group of people who will only experience the love of Jesus if they they push in that direction, just like there's a, a whole other group of people that says, if I don't push in this other direction, this group of people may not experience, uh, you know, uh, the love of Jesus. We keep saying there are, you know, two, two kind of um, things trying to come together under one roof or two cats in a bag. It's really three. <laughs> yeah. You know, a group of people who are, who are leading forward towards full inclusion, matter of justice, uh, Sending, uh, sharing the love of Jesus with people. Uh, you have a group of people who are leaning, you know, more into uh, a way of holiness that they believe, you know, everything conforms to the lordship of Jesus. And you have a group of people <laughs> who are saying, uh, "Why can't we do both?" And um, sort of trying to hold that together and uh, sort of keep us under this big tent. And uh, and I think the question many of us are wrestling with is, can we, you know, can we hold it together? under one big tent when there are such, you know, so foundational disagreements about how we apply uh, our theology and our mission. And um, it really has, you know, we all sort of hoped we could avoid the divorce of the church and um, not experience what many families experience. And yet, uh, I think we're all discovering it is uh, as 
grief-filled and uh, difficult and painful as any divorce would be. Uh, my, my hope my, my hope is that we could see it that way. Uh, it, it is a divorce, period. And it, it kills me that when people say, this is all I've ever known, this is all I've ever known. Did oh. not grow up in the church, came into the United Methodist Church. This is it for me. And the idea of no longer being United Methodist or other people leaving, however it shakes out, um, kills me. It, I mean, I, we've all wept over, over this. Um, but I also think back, my parents got divorced after I was married and out of the house. Um, and I experienced a different side of both of them mm. after they did. It was painful for both of them. It was awful, the process. Um, but I saw a friendship develop between them mm. that was not there when they were living under the same roof. Mm. I mean, my dad was near the end of his cancer journey, near the end of his life. And my mom, his ex-wife was the one driving him to doctor's appointments. Mm. And they were, you know, they were, you know, going over, over memories. And there was a healing that took place not being in the same house anymore. So yeah. I, listeners who are grieved by what is happening, um, I, I think it's necessary at the end of the day and everybody's got to decide what they're going to do with this. But uh, I, I think maybe we could be better friends than, than spouses at this point. Well, but even if we take this outside, I mean, I know the divorce language has been used a lot, um, but maybe a better way to think about it is simply as another thing that has, has been used as a Paul and Barnabas moment. Um, where Paul and Barnabas had a uh, practical disagreement, right, around the practice of ministry that kind of led to them parting ways, not cursing one another, but blessing one another to go their separate ways to do what they feel is the faithful practice of ministry. And really when you you get down to what is, is actually at stake in the conversation around human sexuality, it is the practice of ministry, right? What are our concrete practices concerning marriage and ordination um, of individuals in same-sex relationships. And we, if we could simply resolve to assume the best of one another instead of assuming the worst, to give one another the benefit of the doubt, to engage the process in good faith, could we bless one another instead of cursing one another? Because right now, since we have framed this in terms of divorce and since we have assumed the worst of one another and there is a, a wholesale lack of trust it is worst case scenario, but we could do better, you know? Um, yeah. And I think I think the real opportunity may not be on a denominational level, but especially local churches who are engaging this discussion, you can do better, right? Um, Amen. That as, Amen. Yeah, you know, as we Amen. have these discussions, let us keep in mind that even if we might disagree on these practical questions of the, the practice of ministry when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ community, can we at least assume the best of one another instead of resorting to name-calling and factionalism? Yeah, if we're all following Christ, if we're all leaning into uh, continually trying to be made into his image and receiving his grace, receiving his mercy, uh, forgiveness upon forgiveness, and seeking to be personal and socially holy as he was holy, caring for uh, the world around him, how can we live into that better than the way we treat each other, even in our disagreements? Yeah. You know, something you didn't mention uh, just is, is what happened right after General Session 19, General Conference 19, and right as COVID was coming, was this uh, kind of this the, the Kenneth Feinberg proposal, the protocol, working with Methodists that for a hot minute came from somewhere of people working together. Uh, Feinberg was the one that negotiated the 9-11, uh, the value of life and how we compensate families uh, in devastating loss. Uh, and he offered his services to the United Methodist denomination, to the church, and said, maybe we can get everybody around the table and figure out how to amicably move forward where everyone's getting something of, of the nature of uh, positive momentum in their respective directions. Uh, and there was a protocol offered that was going to go before 2020 general conference, but then 2020 didn't happen. And now the protocol has been kind of removed as an opportunity of legislation for the 2024 general conference. But for a minute, there was we were working toward something amicable. Yeah, it's like we, we for a minute we had 
you know, some maturity and gathered ourselves to try to come to compromise. Nobody was super happy about it, but we were sort of adulting through the divorce. And I Trying. and I think what Trying. happened is with the, the postponement of 2020 and then the postponement, you know, um, of 22 is that people got tired, really, of um, of holding it together and started mm-hmm. acting, you know, kind of in the direction of their conviction and um, but it created a mess. I, I think I'm sure we'll get there in the next episode, meaning that what has unfolded, you know, since the postponement of 2020 and especially in 2022 has has sort of lit a fire under the issue in a really different way. So I know that's another right. episode for another day. But. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll get there for folks that are listening and your church is having these conversations. This was just meant to be a background of what brought us to this point. Mm-hmm. Um Next time, I'll kind of talk about the the varying options that are out there and why people are leaning the directions they are. And, um, you know, there are churches that are joining the new traditional expression. There are churches that are going independent. There are churches that are waiting it out. There are churches that are going to stay UMC come hell or high water, Um, you know, and uh, what the hope is for the, the Wesleyan movement in the, in the midst of, of that bottom line at the end of the day, um, this is this is not an issue. It's not a debate. We're talking about people, and there's been harm caused to the gay community through our arguments. Yeah. Uh, and both sides have some repentance work to do, absolutely, um, yeah. uh, around that. That we have used people uh, as a debate issue, um, and that that hits that hits both sides. Um, so, uh, and I think we need to hold that intention, and we'll pick that back up the next time. So, because that was a lot. Uh, but it's good stuff. Uh, Sarah's going to help us decompress for a minute, right? All right, everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, if you can't, if you can't find moments of laughter and joy in the tension, right, then what's the point? So yeah, we'll shake it off a little bit. Have a little bit of uh, a chuckle, I think, and stretch your knowledge in um, what is more trivia essentially because what else do you do when you only have audio on a podcast but uh, I think you'll like this one so I I went round and round about whether this is a true false situation or a multiple choice situation I I think I'm leaning true false with uh, an opportunity for bonus points Um, so today we'll be asking you and uh, listeners I would love for you to answer before these guys answer about the most unusual high school mascots in the nation Uh, I will share mascot names with you and you tell me if they are an actual mascot for an actual school the bonus point is if you sense that it is a school in Illinois right Hmm. you get bonus stars so you might say uh, true also Illinois right that's an Illinois school Uh, there are a couple I know you will get right so how about uh, our listeners might not know I think you all know we'll start one uh, that is that you have you have to know this and so then you get to start on a really positive foot okay Uh, all right so team number one true or false is there such a team as the orphans yes Centralia ding 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 true the Centralia Orphans and they are an Illinois team alright you ready I'm gonna be good at this I can tell how about this I'm at a disadvantage a major disadvantage why no Pennsylvania questions they're all over Uh, I'm not gonna get any bonus points (laughs) alright how about this one the um, the hippies the hippies sure why not sure I'm gonna say no California uh, that is false there oh. is no such team as the high school hippies thank god how <laughs> but about there, but now there will be uh, this is in honor of a friend of ours in um, our cohort how about the prairie awesome blossoms the prairie blossom. awesome blossoms uh, so we're just gonna assume that's true since it's in honor of someone we know well, no, her name is Blossom. Her name is Blossom. Oh, she doesn't yeah. run a high school. Uh, <laughs> I mean, unless the official sponsor of the high school is Chili's, I, I'm going to say false. I'm going to go no. Uh, it is true. Uh, the Blooming Prairie Awesome Blossoms of Minnesota. 
I've lost my faith in humanity. <laughs> How about awesome. the Laurel Hill f- Hill f- hobos? The hobos. Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna go. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. That sounds fun. Fair enough. True. Illinois team or not? No. No, it is not. That is Florida. Only in Florida. The hobos. Florida man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the Florida man's grandpa. <laughs> How about the, uh, oh gosh, this is just too much fun. Uh, the Jeeps. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, it's probably Michigan. <laughs> oh, yeah, like like Detroit Jeeps or something? Or like in the, the Upper Peninsula where they ride on the dunes and stuff? Maybe. Yeah. It is okay. It is true. It is a team, a mascot, but it is Indiana. Oh, the dunes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The Hoosiers. The All right. Um, the Flaming Hearts. That's, yes. like, oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a metal mascot. That is super The Flaming cool. Hearts. And actually, you should know where this is. Uh-oh. I should? I you should, should or who should? You all should. Well, I'm going to go hearts. ahead and assume it's an Illinois school. Uh, but where? I don't know. Central Northeast. Effingham, no Illinois. Really? Effingham. Effingham. The Effingham I, Flaming Hearts. I mean, I lived an hour away from Effingham and I never heard of it. So, mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. Um, how about uh, the motorists? Uh, yeah, let's go for Michigan again. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. Uh, false. Oh. oh. That's no fun. Um, the tough. hot dogs. <laughs> That's gotta be true. Yes. Hot dogs. True. I don't know where, though. Like, I feel like a good mascot should Oklahoma. be, like, intimidating, right? Like, you should be able to say, look out, here come the dot, dot, dot. Okay, Hot dogs but the is first not something that I would okay, Mister Morton, what's your mascot? Yeah, in Morton? <laughs> you're on, on the hey, list, brother. Do not. Oh, yeah, I, oh I'm sure we are, but you can't. Yeah, we, you we can't got speak the cups. The Morton we got, and then we got the turkeys and. Tur- yeah, I was like, we're the turkeys. <laughs> All right, how about this yeah. one? The wooden shoes. That is in Illinois. That yeah, is actually, in Illinois. I have heard of that, yes, but I, I can't remember what town. I can't think of where. True, true. Teotopolis. Ah. Uh, which is yeah, very yes. close, very close T-town. to Effingham. So you have the flaming yep. hearts and the wooden shoes in competition with one another. I, I mean, Centralia is yeah. not real far. Uh, <laughs> when when I lived one. in Marshall, we played the wooden shoes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, here's one. Mm-hmm. How about the Nimrods? I love that. Please be true. I mean, it is a Bible name. <laughs> Please be true. It is absolutely sure. true. Uh, any any yes. guesses on where? Uh. Dakotas. I don't want to. I don't want to make a guess because that would be offensive <laughs> to the people of that state. <laughs> oh come on! We calling them a bunch of Nimrods. <laughs> <laughs> Here come the fighting Nimrods. <laughs> Michigan. It is Michigan. Oh, it is. Oh man! All right. Up, um, I think again. I'll give you one more to guess, and then just so okay. our listeners aren't strung out from listening to this weird interchange, I'll just share a few fun more fun ones. Okay. So, how about the apple knockers? That's, oh, that's true. Good. That's true. Game. I don't know sure. where, though. Uh, you know, I'm going to say false just because I've been wrong so many times with true. It is true. Oh. Where? Apple Not a clue. Knockers. How about Washington? Cobden, Illinois. Really? Cobden, Illinois, the I apple mean, knockers. Oh. Are you, you're not going to leave Hoopson out of this, are you? I uh mm, hold on. Hoops Hoops in Illinois is the corn jerkers. <laughs> yes, they're on my list. Yes. So um here are a few more fun ones. Um the new Braunfeld unicorns, the That's Yuma fun. criminals, um solid. The uh gobblers out of Texas. The Turks gobblers. Uh the Hereford White Faces. Hereford, Hereford, Eek. Hereford. Yeah, Eek. that one's that one's a little <laughs> that's, cringy. That's, right that's bovine that's right there. The yeah. Hickman Cupies. The who? K- Hickman, Missouri. Cupies. K e w p i e s. That tells us everything we need. Is that mayonnaise? What is that? The um, the maniacs. 
That's, a good the, one. Um, that's the, awesome. The hillbillies, uh, that's a nod to you or your uh, Arkansas roots, the Ozark hillbillies. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Brewer Witches, the Robstown Cotton Pickers. But oh, here's oh, here's some of the interesting uh, the interesting piece to me is many most of these are from Illinois. So on the top twenty most unusual high school mascot names in the nation, uh, the Effingham Flaming Hearts, uh, the Cobden Apple Knockers, the Freeburg Midgets, um, the Hoopstown Corn Jerkers, the Freeport Pretzels. The Centralia Orphans, the Teotopolis Wooden Shoes, the Geneseo Leaves. The Leaves, of course. So so Illinois schools occupy like eight of the 20. And this isn't even all of them. In Illinois, we also have bunnies. We have a bunnies. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Fisher. Uh, yeah, where are yeah. they at? Yeah, Fisher. Fisher. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my cousin yeah. lives in Fisher. Yeah. All, but, Alneys, the white squirrels. Roxanna's the shells. <laughs> and they're, no, the, the Fisher bunnies, their mascot is legit the Playboy bunny. I kid you not. <laughs> the Morton Potters <laughs> would definitely okay. hit the list it's too, okay. right? Like Illinois seems to have an extraordinary amount of them. One of the weirdest I've ever known of a person who went there is the Green Waves. Um, it was it's a Tennessee school because of the like rolling hills, and this is a college, not a high school. But the is it um, Bowling Green, Kentucky, where their mascot is the Hilltopper. Britney's oh, high yeah, school was the Hilltoppers. Yeah. The Hillsboro Hilltoppers. Hilltoppers. Here's a weird wow. one. So oh, maybe that's where I've heard of that. Wherever you find yourself today, take a look around. You might have the weirdest high school mascot in, in your eye line that you've ever heard of ever before. Here's the, the okay. question we were left Especially with in Geneseo. In is in Geneseo, they say they are the maple leafs, L-E-A-F-S, not the maple leaves, because they are one leaf. They are not many leaves. That's true in hockey, too, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. It's not leaves. So yeah. their signs will say, go Leafs. And I thought they were just misspelling it when I first moved there. Make like a tree. Interesting. Anywho. All right. Well, hey, that's all the time we have for today. Because uh, that was weird, but I won. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Next month, we're going to continue this conversation. We'll talk about what what's actually happening. Uh, until then, thanks for joining us on Midnight Theology. Give us a like and a share. Uh, and even in the midst of difficult subjects, heartbreaking debates, remember that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And you could also you could also remember what Harvey Dent said in the Dark Knight movie: "Night is darkest just before the dawn, and I promise you, dawn is coming." See you next time. Thank you.